Take a moment to think about all the cases of sexual harassment you've ever heard of. On Twitter, from your friends, at your post-work drinks with colleagues. You've probably found that many, if not most of the stories, involved women in their 20s. Even the Me Too stories you've heard from older women, many of them will have been stories that occurred years ago when the women were in their 20s. This is not a coincidence. There is something about women in their early 20s. David Buss, an evolutionary psychologist, says that women in their earliest 20s are, for better or for worse, just desirable to all manner of age groups. Even more significantly, they're still very new on the mating market. They're in their earlier days of figuring out how that market works. This makes them vulnerable. But most significant is this. Women in their early 20s are among the most professionally vulnerable demographics in the workplace. They have the fewest connections, the least professional credibility to stand on, the least experience, and they're just the easiest to mess with. Combine this with gender bias, and you find that women in their early 20s are pretty low down the power ladder. Which is to say that sexual harassment in the workplace is really about how we treat the most powerless demographics in the workplace. How easy is it for them to be messed with? What is the culture willing to tolerate? How much does an organization care about how their most powerless are treated? This is Cost to Company, a podcast about work and workplaces. I'm your host, Sneha. And in this episode, we're going to talk about sexual harassment. We will talk about how far we've come, the businesses that have made progress, but we'll also talk about where the vast majority remains and why they remain there. Most specifically, we will shift the focus from individual bad actors to organizations and how they can be improved to make workplaces safer. We will pause to marvel at how far we've come and then we'll talk about the ways in which we need to push the needle further. First, we had the Vishakha guidelines. They were conceived in 1997 to protect working women from sexual advances in the workplace. The law covered sexual conduct, sexual suggestions or sexual advances that affected the health and safety of women in the workplace. In 2013, the Prevention of Sexual Harassment Act was passed and it superseded the Vishakha guidelines. It went into more granularity about the process itself of protecting women in the workplace from sexual harassment. And then in 2018, India had a substantial Me Too movement. And the big changes that Me Too brought was first that we all realised that sexual harassment is far more common than we think. Second, thanks to Me Too, the language of sexual harassment entered common consciousness. Third, even where the perpetrators suffered no material losses, cultures of impunity and silencing were challenged our whispers were spoken out loud. It's now 2022. And the question we're asking is, what's changed? 
first we will begin with Meghna Srinivas, founder and CEO of a startup called Trustin, a platform that provides products and services to help make workplaces safer. Implementing the Posh Act well is one of the primary ways in which she helps businesses. Some of her biggest clients include Proactive for Her, Teach for India and Imbibe. She's also by far the most optimistic person we spoke to for this podcast. As a piece of legislation, you know the Posh law is extremely comprehensive and clear, right? For example, we're running a few pilots in Singapore which has a similar act called the POHA Act. Uh, that's really what it's called, Prevention of Harassment Act. And I think that way it is quite vague about the responsibility of the employer. It's almost like my responsibility to go to the civil courts and take this up. And that's quite similar in the US and other such spaces, right? You have to go to the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission. It just becomes very stressful. So I think in that way, by instituting a civil court in each and every company, almost like the panchayat of your company, the Porsche law has really given us a way to have like a very simple and friction-free grievance redressal process. You also have an external expert in Porsche who can make sure that's objective, right? Things are not uh, very swayed by just what the employer wants. So the Porsche Act does this wonderful thing where it protects women from having to go to court for civic complaints. Instead, every organization with over 10 employees has to have an internal committee, a quasi-legal body that can act in lieu of a formal judicial process. It can perform an inquiry, question witnesses, pronounced judgments. It is a court without having to go to court, what Meghna calls an organizational panchayat. And the act holds the organization liable to provide a safe workplace for its employees. The court was very clear that if you don't set up a committee and actually follow the rules, that we will take away your business license. So what makes the Porsche loop fairly strong in India is that every year, at the end of the calendar year, I have to tell the district officer whether or not I've been compliant. Even if it means that I have to say number of cases received, zero. Number of cases resolved, zero. So most of our clients, what I've seen is, you know, for startups, this is critical for VC due diligence. For social enterprises, this is critical if you want FCRA due diligence done and renewal and things like that. So it's an act that decentralizes redressal, makes it more accessible. And you could lose your right to do business if you don't comply. But it's not just compliance. Many organizations want to create a safer workplace. A lot of companies that we work with have, say, a female co-founder, right? Or they have like quite a majority of uh, female leadership. So for them, this is really about a culture, not like a checklist compliance. More than the Posh Act, Meghna thinks it was Me Too that had a lot to do with this. Um, I think a few other things that came out during the Me Too movement were India and China were the only countries where it happened either anonymously or through intermediaries. Because there was just so much fear in the ecosystem, right? So in India, we saw so many brave like journalists stand up and really name and shame the perpetrators while keeping the survivors anonymous. In China, there were actually, say, Hello Kitty factories where people were embroidering their stories of sexual harassment onto stockings because they were so scared um, of speaking up. But they were angry enough, right? There was enough momentum globally for them to get their stories out. But I think in 2018, when, you know, the Me Too movement hit Asia in a big way is when a lot of stories came out and that's when companies really realized the risk uh, of this operation. It was during Me Too that businesses saw the demand for safe workplaces. They also saw that there was a business risk, a reputational risk, a legal liability risk to not taking sexual harassment seriously. It made many businesses sit up and take notice. 
Next up is Pooja Chandra, a partner at a boutique law firm who practices corporate law but spends a lot of her time mentoring and providing legal assistance to young women in sexual harassment lawsuits. The consultancies are great. They talk about racism and sexism and gender equality and pronouns and how to make a workplace sort of open to all kind of identities. And they really to active orientation of their uh, senior people you know people especially above a certain age group for whom this kind of sort of world where gender is a spectrum and sexuality is a spectrum is a whole new world you know so they do active orientation of these people they have sensitivity sort of consultants who come and talk to these people does that work yes yes these organizations the ones who are doing it well are doing it really well pooja says that some organizations especially the bigger more global consultancies are doing really well at preventing and addressing sexual harassment one of the best ways in which they do it is by educating their organizations not just by giving sexual harassment workshops but gender sensitization workshops consent awareness workshops bias trainings by upskilling the posh committee bringing the older less woke leadership into this post me to world and she really believes it works so because of the combination of a 9 year old posh act the me too movement and just well meaning business leaders some organizations are doing really well but this is where the good news ends both meghna and pooja agree that for the vast majority of women in the workplace legal compliance has not been enough women continue to be unsafe in their workplaces where there is process there is an hr that eventually answers to the larger needs of the business and where there is a law there is a lawyer who can find a loophole it was very much my early 20s and uh, it was my first job this is snehal who began her career 10 years ago at an advertising agency she's now head of marketing at a major luxury brand back then she was an entry level associate at a global advertising firm the kind with celebrity creatives and what she describes as not the most sexism free place there was one of these award parties and at that award party you know a lot of these um, awards would have open bars so advertising people are just generally underpaid so they would obviously take full advantage of these open bars all the time so i went to the bar to uh, get a drink for my friend actually because i was getting up to get myself water and just 2 minutes later there was someone very very drunk standing at the bar and he turned to look at me and he said ah buy you a drink i said it's an open bar <laughs> you don't need to buy me a drink but he was really drunk and uh, without any like just out of the blue this story is so familiar it's almost banal Snehal went to the bar at an office party and a senior executive put his hand up her skirt twice. Unlike most freshers in the workplace, Snehal immediately reported it at the party to the head of her office. He put his arm around her and said, "Come, darling, I'll make him say sorry to you." So she went to another person. He took it more seriously and made sure an inquiry was conducted. So far as you can see, the organization is complying with the law. was an mnc i was working for and uh, it it went into the whole posh process but i did sit with my you know my head of hr 
she was a woman and she has grilled me on this so many times as though i did something wrong and not the other person what do you mean by grill so i was asked to write down the incident uh, three different times and i was asked to relay the incident at least on four to five different occasions and then every time they would match they would record and match my story with the previous one and they would uh, match like the writing that i've done from one to the other and they would pick on these things that were different and i was just like i mean i don't remember every i was also in a state of shock right but i had to prove over and over again and they asked me so many times oh but you know uh maybe you were drunk and you were mistaken the hr then proceeded to intensely investigate whether or not snehal was drunk that night whether or not this was an instance of miscommunication under the influence of alcohol they never believed her but they did believe a senior leader who knew she had not in fact been drinking even the hr kept telling me that oh he, she went on and on and on about how they've taken his character certificate from everyone in the company and they are so deeply shocked and in disbelief that he could ever do something like this and he's a great guy and he's such a nice guy and he's in so much regret he doesn't even remember um you know maybe it was a misunderstanding he wants to apologize can i give him your number and i said are you crazy like no of course you can't give him my number then she said okay maybe i can give him your uh, office extension the hr was compliant in law but not in spirit and there was more discouragement from all quarters I remember my immediate boss used to get upset because i used to be called into meetings constantly by the hr to discuss this and he felt like i'm neglecting my job because of all of these all of this uh, what is it all this drama that is going on uh, is affecting the jobs at hand uh my my vp my team vp he told me that you know i went and spoke to my wife about it and asked her what would you do and she said that main to chappal utha ke maarti and you know you didn't you didn't have any reaction you didn't do anything like i said it's so familiar it's almost banal what snehal wanted was for the organization to announce that it would be intolerant of drunken misbehavior at parties instead she was told that if she did file the formal complaint the man concerned would have to be fired because of the organization's zero tolerance policy the zero tolerance policy was being used as a tool against her to discourage her rather than to meet her needs it gave her legs to stand on but it also took her agency away snehal eventually did complain and he had to be fired which is not what she wanted we're back to the lawyer pooja chandra she she'll not get the increment she deserves she won't get the promotion she deserves she won't get the project that she deserves she won't get the credit that she deserves she'll be asked to leave often softer ways in which the complainant is failed include they'll face an hostile senior management the person who's allegedly harassed them is enjoy will enjoy greater benefits to boost up his confidence these are very common stories and you you've heard personally of each of these things happening it, it's 99% this is what happens so when you have a fair robust hearing an action is taken and a signal is sent out you believe that that's the 1% minority yeah very rare more indie companies smaller companies run by people who want to want to run it fairly which is to say that even when businesses are compliant by law many if not most of them find ways to undermine the act 
But why? Why would a business work so hard to protect bad workplace practices? Uh, number one reason always is to protect the revenue earners because it is a power dynamic issue. Businesses are often short-sighted and will protect bad behavior if the badly behaved person is good for business. If you're complaining against a big revenue owner, then you aren't getting any justice from that organization. Do you believe that? 110%. Please quote me on it. It's a business. Snehal had another case of sexual harassment more recently in her career. The person she was complaining against was her CEO. Her immediate boss was fired after she brought up the complaint. The member of HR who was following due process was fired. In their annual report, this business declared zero sexual harassment complaints that year. Producers note, by law, every publicly listed business needs to declare how many sexual harassment complaints they've had that year. Her lawyers then asked the business, how is it zero? And the business said that what they had created was not a posh committee, but an inquiry committee. So they didn't need to report it. And boom, where there is a will, there is a way to circumvent compliance. There is a perfectly legal way in which justice is not served. After the inquiry was concluded and no harassment was found, Snehal was fired. Hi there, I'm Snegda from the Ken's podcast team. I hope you're enjoying this episode. We are eager to hear your thoughts on it. So please do write to us at podcast at theken.com. It is T-H-E hyphen K-E-N dot com. Also, we would love for you to share with us any interesting ideas, stories, experiences and observations that you think we should take up on cost to company. We want to build a cost to company community and we want you to be a part of this show. And for that reason, we have created a special type form for you to fill out. You'll find it linked to the show notes of this episode. Also, if you're liking this show, please do click on follow and rate us on whatever podcast platform you're tuned into. If you're listening to this on Spotify, you can press the bell icon so that next time we drop a new episode, you will get notified. You can do the same on Apple Podcasts. Just click on the plus symbol on the top right corner of the podcast page. It'll take you a second. Also, one last thing. A brand new episode of our other podcast, First Principles, is also out. This one features Vinita Singh, the co-founder and CEO of Sugar Cosmetics. The candid conversation between Vinita and Rohan from the Ken gives great insight into the lenses that Vinita uses to look at the world around her. If you're stuck in never-ending traffic, this is the perfect episode. Thank you in advance and now back to Sneha. Then there's a vast knowledge gap. The big one is that most of us don't know that there is a limited window in which we can complain. There is a lot about the act that is not told clearly. Like you have a limitation, a very strict limitation. You have to complain within three months. Who who knows that? You know, you go through an actual sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual molestation at workplace, three months is nothing. It takes you six months to gain confidence to actually... Nobody knows you have to complain within three months. Three and a maximum of six months is the size of the window within which you can complain. Almost no sexual harassment policy explains this clearly. 
The three-month limitation was designed to ensure that evidence is not lost, that the people concerned are still around. But this is frequently weaponized against women. Complaints that don't meet the limitations just aren't processed. In one instance, someone who was being sexually harassed was fired exactly six months after the last instance of harassment. There's also that we don't really understand what sexual harassment even is. Okay, so see, the law is for sexual harassment at workplace. It's not a law to protect against sexual assault. What is the difference between sexual harassment and sexual assault? It's a lesser crime, the difference between battery and assault. If I tell that man, that's a, you're staring and it makes me uncomfortable. Okay. And he says, I'm sorry, that was not my intention. And it ends there. There's no harassment. But if he takes offense, his ego gets hurt and he starts docking my pay, giving me less opportunities because I called him out on behavior, that's sexual harassment at workplace. That is what happens. Another repeatedly heard pattern is that women set the bar high for reporting to Posh. They don't set the bar at feeling unsafe. They set the bar at assault. They will wait to be assaulted before they complain. But sexual harassment is a civic case. It's not a criminal case. And it's specifically for less violent but more insidious transgressions. Because those can really affect a person's health at the workplace. Career in the long term and confidence for life. There's also the softer question of what if something's acceptable to everyone else but not to me? What if I'm just not cool enough or casual enough? This makes a lot of women question their own instinct. This is one of the cornerstones of how women are pressured into withdrawing their complaints. Except... It is. It is. Sexual harassment is not for you and me to define. It is for the person who suffers it to, be, to define it. Having your own boundaries, your own standards, your own culture is your right. A workplace that is safe for you is your right. Then there's the posh committee itself. By law, the posh committee requires an external member with some legal or NGO experience. But Meghna recommends that it's more important that the person who is brought in has psychological training. The external member should have an understanding of the nuanced and strange ways in which trauma works. There's also the fact that the Posh Act only protects the safety of women. Many litigants are trying to fight this in court. But organizations can be proactive and ensure that the policy protects the workplaces of all genders. What happens many times is we have to understand Yes, it's important to have somebody who's quite strongly legally trained because there are questions of fact and questions of law that need to be rigorously answered in every investigation. But you also have to understand the psychology of the parties at hand, right? Uh, it's not just a complaint and respondent, but witnesses are so scared in posh um, investigations, right? To be able to speak to their fears and really uncover what happened. You also have to help manage the um, psychology of the members of the internal committee. Right? There might be some biases or mental models that come up because you're all a part of the same organization. You have seen these players in different setups. So then it's really about the external member playing that devil's advocate and being able to understand whether the you know, internal committee is speaking from a fact of evidence basis, which has come out in the investigation, or they're coming from their pre-existing mental models and mindsets and really calling that out. And the largest knowledge gap that exists is in understanding why sexual harassment happens. 
द मी टू मूवमेंट नॉर्मलाइज कॉलिंग आउट बैड बिहेवियर बट इट कंसर्न इट सेल्फ मच मोर विद नेमिंग एंड शेमिंग ऑफ इंडिविजुअल हरासर्स बट नॉट द वर्क प्लेस इज दैट एम्बोल्ड इन दैम बट सेक्शुअल हरासमेंट इज इंट एन इंटरपर्सनल इशू इट इज अ वर्क प्लेस इशू इट्स एन ऑर्गेनाइजेशन दैट मस्ट बी हेल्ड रिस्पॉन्सिबल फॉर एनी एक्सप्लॉयटेटिव बिहेवियर दैट इज टॉलरेटेड बाई इट्स एम्प्लॉयज the organization and let me explain to you very simply uh there are in every social structure people with more rights and people with lesser rights in terms of age age of consent um uh, power uh, structure of that particular let's say a father will have more rights of in a domestic setup and the organization is the person who are duty bound to create a culture where these things can be called out we're back to megna founder and ceo of trustin sexual harassment sexual assault it's not about sex it's about power right and really the exploitation of that power differential between two individuals or groups so it can be any kind of power i think many times we think about gendered power imbalances or perhaps manager subordinate kind of relationships uh but it would really be i think any way right like a socio economic sort of differentials wherever there are these large imbalances of power and where you cannot speak truth to power is where we really see um, abuses of power like sexual harassment thrive organizations are responsible for creating and upholding large differentials in power so if you would okay if i were to if if the core is power differentials power inequity right. first how does that manifest what does that look like what is a par what does an organization with a lot of par inequity look like yeah i think on the most perhaps a uh, fundamental level you would see a lot of hierarchical structures right uh, perhaps it is that you know there is very strict like uh, trickle down and trickle up sort of channels of communication if decision making in organizations is non transparent if leadership is high handed and not accountable those become festering grounds for sexual harassment cases what do you mean by trickle up and trickle down i think yeah yeah so i think definitely when you think about uh, organizations with these uh, it's called a power distance yes i think uh, one of the things is organizations with you know um, a high power distance like hierarchy uh, i think and also the layers are not speaking to each other right or you cannot skip a layer um there is no sort of open door policy right between layers and things like that so i think that there's already a fear uh, there's already like this opaque opacity about each layer right so all these things make it harder for you to actually access your rights in practice it's just that in theory almost like a checklist the policy has been done so i think that's another uh, thing where you know it becomes very very difficult for employees in that kind of workplace to access their rights you know people are defined more by their roles almost like by their titles as opposed to perhaps their contributions so in that kind of space i have noticed that there is like a stronger culture of okay you can speak up or you can have a grievance but only if you are a certain kind of title or in a certain kind of location or in a certain kind of role so that definitely does trickle down to people at the grassroots perhaps people at the associate level fresher level um they might be facing certain pieces but they're not allowed to talk about it they're not feeling empowered to talk about it 
Meghna feels very strongly that having more women in leadership positions helps. But it's not enough. Women in leadership can also be instrumental in creating rigid power structures, in consolidating power differentials. What is more important is a commitment to reducing power distance, a commitment to allowing juniors to call out seniors, a commitment to breaking hierarchies, in the ability to speak freely with leadership and hold them accountable. We opened with the fact that sexual harassment is all about the more powerful demographics exploiting the less powerful demographics in an office. If a business culturally preserves those power differentials, you're creating breeding grounds for bad sexual harassment practices. You may be compliant, but in spirit, you're already failing the Posh Act. This is all to say that sexual harassment is simply not a compliance issue anymore. It is a cultural issue and it requires a desire to change office cultures rather than to simply comply with the law. I am not going to tell you that the absence of legislation is better than a legislation. But evolvement of a legislation to its peak or premium existence happens when it is implemented. If you implement it well, then only will you know how it can be improved. One of the ways Meghna thinks a business can move beyond just compliance is by creating a cultural document, a desirable code of conduct document. What is, what is a code of conduct? A code of conduct, I would say, is perhaps the you know, first HR document that companies should think of. It definitely is something where, you know, your mission and vision and values will come out. But there's also very strict, perhaps, articulation of what is and isn't appropriate in our workplace and in our context and with our stakeholders. For example, can you give me a couple of examples? I think um, based on the workplace, the code of conduct can include things like a dress code, right? Um, It would already include like an articulation of, okay, here's our mission, here's our vision, here's what we stand for, here's what perhaps we have zero uh, sort of tolerance towards. Um, I would say that there are ways in which we can and cannot communicate with interns, right? So it's better to stick to things like email and Slack communications. Even if the interns are reaching out to us on more, um, let's say, informal spaces like WhatsApp and Instagram. Um, I think even a drugs and alcohol use policy can be useful in spaces and domains like media, where there might be a lot of parties with these substances involved. A code of conduct can also include something like, you can't force colleagues to drink at a party. How you may and may not communicate with an intern. Another thing that employers should keep in mind is that usually in the employment contract itself, we always have a clause, right, that says if you do not adhere to the HR Uh, documents, right? The code of conduct, the service rules, then we do reserve the right to terminate such an employee and everybody signs off on this. So a code of conduct is a really strong place to start towards these policies. A code of conduct is a sort of constitution of an organization. It articulates what the organization hopes to be. It's a cultural document that can be legally enforced. And when it's created preemptively, it sends out pretty strong signals about what a business is and isn't willing to tolerate, the ways in which power differentials can and cannot be maintained. Meghna also thinks that a zero-tolerance policy towards sexual harassment can be counter-effective. Uh, many of them want a conciliation, right, which also the posh law allows for, saying that, hey, I want a mediated conversation where me, the perpetrator and the internal committee is present. I want a written apology. I want this behavior to stop. But I never wanted this person to be fired. 
right? And I think companies, again, have to have committees that are skilled enough to have these conversations, mediate these conversations, have a settlement agreement, and make sure there are no cultural repercussions later. Because just by firing someone and then saying that, you know, it's a don't ask, don't tell, we don't know what happened to this person who was just asked to leave, uh, it always has cultural repercussions. And it definitely leads to a cultural failure. Um, I, yeah, I think definitely if this is not what the complainant wanted, right, and there was no investigation, then what the complainant is going to perhaps feel is that it's not safe to speak up again. Another policy that's worked in the past is the Ombuds Office. MIT in the 1980s had instituted something called the Ombuds Office, which is a private confidential space where you can make informal complaints without seeking any redresser. A soft complaint. Mary Rowe, a labor economist and an adjunct professor of negotiation, who served for 42 years as head of MIT's Ombuds office, says that employers who want to expose and address harassment must offer this alternative. Only 1 in 100 complaints, she believes, can survive the rigors of a legalistic grievance process. If such a process is the only option, most victims won't come forward. Pooja believes organizations shouldn't be so scared of conducting inquiries. They should normalize calling out and normalize conducting inquiries. It's just a civic case with civic implications. At worst, what will you have to do? You'll have to dock his pay for three months. If he's a high revenue earner, he can afford it. And it'll act like a deterrent for the rest of his life. An apology, a few months of pay docked, at worst a termination. That's what's at stake for an accused. They'll survive. Organizations shouldn't be so afraid of conducting fair inquiries. And they needn't work so hard to shut them down. Which is all to say that our legislative progress, our cultural progress isn't enough. We have to go miles still. And we should stop thinking about sexual harassment as an individual bad act but as an organizational issue, a cultural issue with cultural remedies. Progress is not going to come through legalese, it's going to come from the desire to make progress. But Pooja does have some advice to hand out to young women. I would appreciate that you write an email as soon as possible, otherwise your three-month period will get over. Then I also tell them that I would appreciate if you call out inappropriate behavior, even if you don't want to Um, sort of uh, categorize it as harassment. If something makes you uncomfortable, I would rather you nip it in the butt. Call it out on their faces. Don't care if they're senior. Don't care if they're uncomfortable. If they're 50 girls, they should learn to behave in 50 different ways to those girls. I don't care. This, how the most powerful treat the most powerless in an organization, that is a measure of a business's worth. This was a podcast from The Ken. This episode of Cost to Company was written, hosted and produced by Sneha Vakharia with audio engineering by Rajiv CN. If you have thoughts, feelings or episode ideas, write to us at podcast at the-ken.com. If you like the podcast and want to know more, follow The Ken Web on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Don't forget to give the show a 5-star rating on Spotify or Apple and follow us wherever you get your podcasts so that you get a notification when the next episode drops. I'm Srivar, the other host of Costa Company. And next week, I'm going to be speaking to you about your to-do list. 
I mean, I don't know what's on your to-do list, but I'm here to tell you that there's a better way to tracking your tasks. And that's by tracking your time. As one of my guests says, that the calendar is his new superpower. And it's pretty much how he interacts with his workers. But can the humble calendar really solve the problems of personal and org-wide productivity? Is the to-do list really all that unproductive? We'll find out in the next episode. Stay tuned.